got your Bibles with you, going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8. It's going to be our text, it's going to be verses 1 to 13 of Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, going to look at the first 13 verses of Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Please hear this public reading of God's Word. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he, Jesus, had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, And he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Let's pray together briefly. Dear Heavenly Father, it is a privilege, as always, to gather here with your people. It's a privilege to sing uh, with your people. And Father, it's a privilege to have your word. And Father, in this passage, these two wonderful stories, Father, the, the glory of Jesus is clearly on display in this passage of Scripture that we just read. And Father, I pray you'd give us eyes to see the glory of Jesus in this passage, and I pray that when we see his glory, we would be changed from one degree of glory to the next. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So before I give you my three basic like, headings of my sermon, the outline is very simple. Before I do that, I want to set the stage for us. I want to look back at the end of Matthew 7. I'm going to read verses 28 and 29 of Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29 says this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, so when he finishes the Sermon on the Mount, The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So Jesus has just finished this most famous sermon, the most powerful sermon that's ever been preached, the Sermon on the Mount. He just finished it, and the crowds are astonished. They'd never heard anyone like Jesus. I think Mark mentioned this a few weeks ago. Mark would say that typically rabbis would quote other rabbis or multiple rabbis to sort of build their credibility, but not Jesus. Jesus said, you've heard it been said. But I say to you, he spoke with authority. No one's ever uh, preached like Jesus. And people are stunned at the teaching of Jesus. Great crowds of people are around him. All kinds of diverse people are around Jesus. People with needs, religious people, uh, non-religious people, rich and poor. All kinds of people are gathered around Jesus. They've been stunned by his teaching. Then we move into our text. Matthew 8, verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So you have all these people. They've just seen, just heard the most amazing sermon. They're thinking, what is going to happen next in the life of Jesus? I just can't wait to see what's going to happen next. Well, what happens next? <clears throat> Verse 2, <clears throat> and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. My guess is nobody's expecting this to happen. 
You see, in, in the time of Jesus, lepers would typically not approach like this. No way they would approach. I mean, they're, they're socially ostracized away from society. People would have been terrified at his sight. But here comes a leper out of nowhere. So this is be totally unexpected. This leper comes out of nowhere to the shock of the crowd. He comes before him, kneels before him, verse 2, and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So that, that's sort of the stage. Let me give you my three basic points. Sorry, I've had a bit of a cold. I may have to cough some. God's power is made perfect in weakness. That's what I've been thinking, talk, told Olivia on the way here. That, so may have to cough some. So three main points. Very simple outline. Number one, the leper. Number two, the centurion. And number three, Jesus. That's the three main points of, of the sermon. We're just going to look at these three different people. Number one, the leper. Number two, the centurion. And number three, Jesus. So number one, the leper. The first thing that we see about this leper is we want to think about is we want to think about his condition. His condition. What is the condition of this leper? Well, in Luke's gospel, there's a parallel account of this same story. It's in Luke chapter 5. And Luke, who remember, he was a physician, the beloved physician, Paul calls him. He was a physician. Luke chapter 5, verse 12 says that this man was, quote unquote, full of leprosy. That's what Luke says. He was full of leprosy. So this man had leprosy to the maximal degree. He, I mean, he is covered in leprosy. Basically, from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, he's covered in leprosy. He has it to the maximal degree. This would have been clearly visible. You would have told very easily that this man is covered in leprosy. His appearance would have been absolutely frightening to people. This man would have been isolated. He likely would have been destitute. He would have been an outcast of society. In the ancient world, leprosy was considered the most terrible of all diseases. There was no medical treatment. I mean, the doctors could do absolutely nothing to heal a leper. Nothing. And the disease caused your body to literally rot away. The lot of the leper is, is described in Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. Let me, let me read Leviticus 13, verses 45 and 46. It says this, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So you see, he, he had a disheveled appearance. He would have to cry out, unclean, unclean. Anytime he came in contact with a normal population, he's isolated. And no one would dare touch a leper. No one would dare touch a leper. So just try to feel some, a little bit of compassion for this leper for just a minute. Try to put ourselves in his shoes for just a minute. I mean, just imagine this past week, everywhere you went, where you came in range of the normal population, you went to the grocery store this week, imagine if you had a crowd, unclean, unclean, everywhere, down every single aisle, you had to say, unclean, unclean, and people would look at you with horror, with fright, and they would scatter away from you everywhere you went. I mean, how would that make you feel? You go to the park, and you, a crowd of people, you have to say, unclean, unclean, they would disperse in shock. I mean, one of the commentators mentioned, I think it was, they quoted Josephus, I think, the historian that Mark quoted last time, he said a rabbi at the time of Jesus, when he saw a leper, got too close, he would literally pick up rocks and throw at the leper. That's what this rabbi said. That's how they were treated. I mean, this sense of worthlessness and despair that perhaps would pervade this man in our story. And in addition, leprosy was thought to be incurable. Nothing the physicians could do, as I said. A leper's case would have been considered hopeless. It would take a direct act of God to heal a leper. So this is, that's his condition. Secondly, I'm cheating and using two on this second point would be his boldness and his reverence. Let, let's read this. So his boldness and his reverence. Matthew 8, verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So his, his boldness. There's great crowds of people. Again, he would have been socially ostracized. People have been frightened. He has leprosy to the maximal degree. People are just dispersing in horror around him. And yet he has great boldness. He doesn't care about the response. He must get to Jesus. He has great boldness. He's got to get to Jesus. He doesn't care about the response. 
He has great boldness, and then he has great reverence. Verse 2, Matthew 8, And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He shows great respect, this posture of adoration. Again, in Luke's parallel account, Luke says he fell on his face. My guess is he kneels, and he goes all the way down, falls on his face, prostrates himself down at the feet of Jesus, it's a beautiful picture. This man knows he's unclean. He knows he's filthy. He knows he is absolutely miserable and destitute. He's disfigured. He's deformed. So he prostrates himself down out of reverence before the Lord. He has boldness. He has reverence. Number three, we see his faith, staggering faith. Again, verse two of Matthew eight, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. I mean, this is an amazing statement of faith. Remember, this is thought to be incurable, and yet this man believes that Jesus can heal him of his leprosy. Look at it again. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. The idea is, I don't know if you will, Jesus, but I know that you can. That's what he's saying. I know you have the power to do it. I'm not sure if you're going to do it, but I know you have the power to do it. This is a marvel that this man believes that Jesus could remove an incurable disease. Lord, you can heal me if you want to, amazing statement of faith that this man has immense faith. So here's the thing. We can pause this and we can deduce from this that this man must have heard of Jesus before this day. He either saw Jesus before this day or he heard from someone else about Jesus before this day and he had meditated on the person and work of Jesus. So let's use our imagination for just a second. I don't know if this is how it happened, but maybe this is how it happened. He is in his leper colony. He, he's isolated. Maybe he's on his own. He's feeling miserable, downtrodden, just totally suffering with this leprosy all over his body. There he is alone, and maybe another leper comes racing into the leper colony, and he announces to everyone, everyone come over here right now. You've got to hear me right now. I was in town, and I heard the most amazing man I've ever heard in my life. And this leper hardly moves, the man in our story. He stays there, not even paying attention. But this guy continues, and he says, there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth. No one has ever taught like this man. He said, he claims that he can forgive sins, and he promises eternal life. I've never heard anyone teach like Jesus. But then there was a man with a crippled hand, and he came to Jesus. I saw his hand. It was crippled, deformed, and Jesus stretched out his hand and healed him. His hand was restored instantly. I've never seen anything like it. And then maybe just a little bit of faith is born in this man in our story, like a mustard seed. And maybe he thinks, maybe Jesus can help me. But then the man continues. He said, there was a, there was a man who was crippled in his legs. He could not walk. And they brought him to Jesus. And Jesus said, stand up, rise up, and walk. And the man ran, jumped. I've never seen anything like it. And there was a man who was blind. He could not see. They drag, drug him by the hand, and his eyesight was restored. Jesus restored his eyesight. Now faith has grown strong in this leper, and he knows. He knows that Jesus can heal me. I know he can. I must get to him. So he races forward. He talks to the other leper. He says, where did you see him? He said, he's up in the mountain. He's teaching. He's going to be done soon. And the leper races off and the crowd of people is there. He cries out, unclean, unclean, because he has to get to Jesus. And he gets down at his knees and prostrates himself down at Jesus' feet because he knows that Jesus can cure his disease because he had meditated on the person and work of Jesus. So he has incredible faith. Number four, the fourth thing about this leper we see is his healing. This is just moving. Let me read verses two and three. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. This man keeps his distance. He must stay away. But Jesus closes the distance. My guess is when this man came forward, there are people in the crowd who are at least thinking Jesus, tell that wretched man to go home. Get him out of the way. 
Jesus doesn't. He's steadfast right in front of him. And then Jesus closes the gap. And people are surely horrified that Jesus would close the gap. And people are thinking, don't touch him, Jesus. Whatever you do, do not touch him. You're going to defile yourself. You're going to become ritually unclean. But Jesus goes forward with tenderness and love. And we're going to look at Jesus in a minute. Comes forward with tenderness. He did not need to touch him. He could have simply said, be cleansed. And he would have been cleansed. But Jesus has tenderness for this man. He comes forward. He grasps a hold of him. Is the idea of this word. He grasps a hold of him and says, I will be clean. This man likely has not been touched by a non-leper's hand in years. And Jesus touches him and says, I will be clean. And of course, Jesus does not become ritually unclean. The power is exerted in the opposite direction. For at Jesus' touch, nothing remains defiled. Far from becoming unclean, Jesus makes the unclean clean. The leper catches the cleansing of Jesus. I mean, this man arrives totally covered in leprosy. And Jesus says, I will be clean. And he's healed of his leprosy instantaneously. I mean, this cleansing would have been instantaneous. I mean, the crowd would have been shocked, horrified, and then they would have been stunned that Jesus touched him. And then they would have been even more stunned that the man was healed. His face, his hands, his ears, his nose instantly restored. One commentator just said, no doubt a rolling roar rose from the multitude as the realization of what had happened set in. I mean, if you were there that day, you never would have forgotten this. There's no way. You would have told your kids, you would have told your grandchildren about this day, about this leper coming forward. You were terrified. You ran away. And then Jesus approached him and then Jesus touched him and then Jesus healed him. And we can only guess how the leper reacted. Can you imagine this leper, this miserable man? He's down on his face before Jesus and then Jesus touches a hold of him. What joy he heard when he said, I will be cleansed. He looks at his hands and his hands are restored instantaneously. His whole entire body restored. What joy he must have responded with. And there's no way he went around saying unclean, unclean anymore. My guess is he said, I'm clean. I'm clean. I'm clean. Of course, Jesus did not contract uncleanliness, but communicated cleansing with his touch. The fifth thing we see about this leper, we see the instruction that he receives. In verse 4, the instruction that he receives And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. So basically two things he tells them. First thing he says, beginning of verse four, see that you say nothing to anyone. So why does Jesus say, don't say anything to anyone about this? Well, lots of guesses on this. I think the best guess, the most likely reason is Jesus doesn't want want people flocking to him and missing the main point of his ministry. He doesn't want to draw undue attention to himself as a miracle worker. He doesn't want a desire for healings to hinder his more important work of preaching the gospel. I think that's clearly what's going on with that first part. But the second part, why does he tell him, middle of verse 4, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Why does he say this? Well, if you were cleansed of leprosy, you couldn't just simply go home and just say, you know, I'm home. You you can't do that. There's, quote, unquote, paperwork that he must do. He has to go through this several days process that's laid out in the law. Charles Spurgeon put it like this. The old law stood and our Lord would have it honored while it lasted. Therefore, the healed leper must go to the priest, present his offering, and get from the proper official a certificate of health. Besides, he would thus be bearing witness to the nation that there was one among them who could cure leprosy. So what's some application that we can take away from this leper? Some application that we can draw from this leper? Well, first, his condition. His condition. Remember, he's covered in leprosy. He has it to the maximal degree. Well, his condition is a picture of us in our sin. It's a picture, a powerful picture of us in our sin. Alistair Begg puts it like this. Leprosy is one of the clearest pictures that the Bible contains of the predicament of men and women as sinners. We suffer not from this physical ailment, But we suffer by our natures from the leprosy of sin, the leprosy that has spoiled our souls. 
Another commentator said, the leper was a parable of sin, an outward and visible sign of our inmost spiritual corruption. Another pastor just said, leprosy is a picture of spiritual death. Lepers would be considered the walking dead, but we're spiritually dead. Leprosy is a picture of spiritual death. And there's no human remedy that's going to save us from our spiritual death. And if we remain in this condition, we're going to perish eternally. So we need a Savior. We're in desperate need of a Savior. Now, so we want to see ourselves with this leprosy as a picture of us in our sin. We have spiritual leprosy. Now, his healing. Think about his healing. Jesus' touch, rather than contaminating Jesus, cured the leper. As one commentator said, it is a spectacular demonstration of what Jesus' coming does in respect to human sin. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus does with respect to human sin. He came to take away our sins. You should call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He came to take away our sins. Jesus is the only person who can raise the spiritually dead. So here's some application. The application is we want to bring people to Jesus. We want to take people to Jesus. Those loved ones we know, relatives, coworkers that don't know Jesus, we want to get them to Jesus. We want to eventually bring the conversation to the person and work of Jesus because Jesus is the only one who can help them with their spiritual leprosy. We want to bring people to Jesus. Is it application? And as I reflected on this man in our story who was filled with leprosy, covered in leprosy, I began to think about people in church history who were covered in spiritual leprosy, who were just massive sinners, sinners to the nth degree, you can name all kinds of people. Certainly the Apostle Paul came to mind. I mean, here's a man covered in spiritual leprosy, persecuting the church, killing Christians. And on the Damascus road, he meets the resurrected Christ. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And the Apostle Paul is converted, cleansed, covered in the blood of Jesus. He was just covered in sin, and there he is, his life changed, forgiven. But one other commentator mentioned John Newton, and I was moved afresh. Thinking about John Newton, I know I've mentioned him, but man, John Newton, if you, if you know his story, grew up in a wonderful Christian home, wonderful godly mother, Elizabeth Newton, who poured out her life into him, even though she died at 27 when John Newton was just six years old, and yet she did not squander her days. She had tuberculosis, suffered greatly, had him on, his, on her knee and taught him the gospel, taught him hymns, taught him theology and the things of God. And she dies, Newton's six, and then Newton's life just Fast forward several years and just his life just spirals into all kinds of sin and wretchedness and wickedness. The man was a vile and wicked man. If ever there was one, just massive sin in this man's life. He is covered. If ever anyone was covered in spiritual leprosy, that was John Newton. And he's on a boat. And the massive storm rises up in the middle of the ocean. And they're trying to pump the water off the boat. I think one of the other sailors perished on this boat. And here's Newton thinking he's going to perish. He's covered in sin. What does he do? Well, he remembers something. He remembers what his mother taught him. When he was a boy, he remembers the gospel that his mother so faithfully taught him. And what does he do? He cries out for mercy, essentially saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here's a man covered in spiritual leprosy. The Lord Jesus cleanses him and heals him, covers him with his blood. And John Newton becomes this faithful preacher of the gospel, letter writer, hymn writer, amazing grace. We are benefiting from his writings to this day. Last story I'll mention, George Whitfield, incredible preacher of the gospel, one of the most powerful preachers the Lord has ever raised up, just tremendously gifted. He's preaching in the open air seeing revivals happen, seeing thousands of people converted under his ministry. Now he faced opposition, violent opposition. People attacked him, mob violence against him. People tried to kill him. On one occasion, a man came with one purpose. His purpose was to assassinate George Whitfield. He came armed. He had some kind of weapon concealed. His entire intention of coming was to kill George Whitfield. He has, pl he has plotted premeditated murder. There he is. There's a man who's a sinner. There's a man who is covered in spiritual leprosy. There he is sitting in the crowd waiting for the opportune time. He's waiting for Whitfield to finish, and then he's going to try to assassinate Whitfield. But while he sits there, what happens? He has to listen to George Whitfield preach. And what happens? He hears about the holiness of God. He hears about his sin. He hears about the Lord Jesus and the blood shed for him. And what happens? He's cut to the quick as he listens to Whitfield preach. 
And he's covered in the blood of Jesus. He's saved from his spiritual leprosy. So when you read Matthew 8, 1 to 3, the next time, I would say, see yourself. If you're a Christian here today, there was a time when you were covered in spiritual leprosy. And the Lord Jesus, as a word, came to you. He grabbed a hold of you and said, I will be clean. And you were cleansed and you were washed by the blood of Jesus. Lastly, I would say, if you're not a Christian, I'll quote a portion of a hymn that says, Come, ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready, stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. That's what you see in this. He's full of pity and compassion, but he has power to save you. So come with repentance and faith, and he will save you. Briefly, I'll just mention about his boldness, his reverence and faith, how he prays. He basically, no, he doesn't pray, he just says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And different commentators talk about this is the spirit of all sort of Christian prayer. At the end of the day, we say, according to your will, if you will. We ask all these things, but we say, not my will, but yours be done. That, that, that's the application there. And Tim Challies, who lost his son Nick at 21, he just said, he began to think about his other kids. And he said his other kids might, might as well have been made of glass. He was just thinking, if God took one of my children, he could take another one of my kids, just like that. He just worried about his kids. Anxiety is coming in. So how can I deal with this anxiety? He said, the only way I know how is deliberately submitting myself to the will of God. When I surrender, when I bow the knee, then peace flows like a river and attends my way. And he has this powerful scene in the, in the book. He wrote uh, Seasons of Sorrow. His oldest daughter is going back to school after the death of his son, Nick. He's saying goodbye to her. He grabs a hold of her. He kisses her. He says, have a safe trip. See you soon. And he prays for her. He's going to be safe. And he said, as he got in the van, he said, one more prayer. He said, not my will, but yours be done. And that's, that's the way, that's what we can learn from this leper, to pray in that way. Secondly, second main point of the message, the centurion, the centurion. Verses 5 and 6 of Matthew 8. When he, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. The first quick thing to notice about the centurion is we see his kindness, his kindness on display. His servant is paralyzed, is suffering terribly. And so what does the centurion do? He, he goes to Jesus about his servant. People pointed this out. Servants in that day and age likely would not have been treated this well. And sometimes the servants would have just been simply cast off and been left to die. But this centurion goes to Jesus out of kindness for his servant. Spurgeon has great application. He said, it is good for masters to be concerned for their servants, especially when they are sick. It is best of all when they go to Jesus about their servants, as this centurion did. Secondly, I'm combining two on this one again. Cheating on this one, we're going to see his humility and his faith. His humility and his faith. So again, let's read from the beginning of verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. So just pause for just a second. He lays the case out. He doesn't actually ask Jesus to do anything. He lays the sorrow out before Jesus. Jesus says, I will come and heal him. How do you think the centurion would have responded? You would have thought he would have said, oh, thank you, Jesus. This is wonderful news. Let's go at once. I'll show you the way. We'll, we'll make it quickly. We've got to heal him right now. We've got to get there right now. But that's not how he responds. First, he's humble. He's a humble man. Verse 8, but the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. He's clothed in humility. He sees the dignity of Jesus. He says, no, Jesus, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. We see his humility. But look at his faith. Again, middle of verse 8, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. This is extraordinary faith. 
One commentator said, until now there has been no example, no example of Jesus healing at a distance. So the centurion's faith was unusually strong. And notice again, the centurion is not asking Jesus to pray. He's not asking Jesus to pray. He says again, verse 8, but the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. He doesn't say pray to God and my servant will be healed. No, he says, you, Jesus, say the word, my servant will be healed. This is astonishing faith that the centurion has. And then he uses this argument here in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, he says, For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. What is he doing here? He's making an argument. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. What he's saying, if a mere word or two from me elicits action from soldiers and servants, Jesus, how much more powerful is your word? How much more powerful is your word? When you speak, diseases will vanish and flee. Paralysis will vanish at your word. Jesus, that's what he's saying. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's declaring his confidence that Jesus is an almighty master and king and that diseases like obedient servants will at once depart at his orders. Now, Jesus is absolutely amazed at this. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. He marveled. He's amazed at his faith. I think only one other time in the Gospels, Jesus marvels and he marvels at the unbelief of the city of Nazareth. But here Jesus is marveling at his faith. When Jesus heard this again, verse 10, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus is stunned at this man's faith. All these weeks and months I have been teaching and preaching and doing mighty works. I have never seen anything like this centurion, never seen anyone have faith like this centurion has. Third thing we see is we're going to see his servant healed. So I'm going to skip Jesus' teaching here and we'll come back to that at the end. We'll come down to verse 13 and we'll see his servant is healed. Verse 13, Matthew 8, and to the centurion Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. The very time Jesus speaks the word, the servant is healed. A servant that Jesus has never seen in a house he's never been to, but Jesus speaks the word and his servant is healed. This shows the incomparable power of Jesus. Incomparable power. And with the word, Jesus heals that servant. The Lord Jesus speaks this man into health, having never seen him, having never gone into his house. So what's some application that we can take away from the centurion? Let me read verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. I, I love this. He doesn't actually ask Jesus to do anything. He just simply lays the sorrow out. Spurgeon said he lets the sorrow speak the feet of Jesus. It's just beautiful. He just lays it out. It's just a reminder that we can just pour out our, cast our cares on the Lord. I mean, you ever come to the Lord and just say, Lord, I am hurting. I'm suffering. I'm depressed. I'm sad. I'm anxious. I'm, I'm spiritually dry. Just pour out your souls before the Lord. Just, just cast the sorrows at his feet. He cares for us. We should learn to, to pray like this man. Pour it out there. Secondly, his kindness. He shows kindness to the, ser the servant. J.C. Ryle is so good. I'm going to quote him multiple times today, but he said, let us learn a lesson from the centurion's example. Let us, like him, show kindness to everyone with whom we have to do. Let us strive to have an eye ready to see and a hand ready to help and a heart ready to feel, and a will ready to do good to all. Let us be ready to weep with those that weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. I would say quickly, secondly, we, we want to be clothed with humility like this man was. And then third, we want to have strong faith. We want to feed our faith. And my guess is, again, the centurion and the leper both had thought, meditated on the person and work of Jesus. We want to think about the person and work of Jesus to strengthen our faith. Lastly, the last point is Jesus. First thing we see about Jesus is his compassion. The beginning of our text, again, going back to the leper. 
I'll read again a little bit from the beginning. Verse 2 of Matthew 8. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Again, this, this leper is crying out, unclean, unclean. He prostrates himself at the feet of Jesus. Jesus closes the gap. He didn't have to do this, but he's filled with compassion and tenderness and love. And he grabs a hold of him and says, I will be clean. He's not afraid of our uncleanness. We see clearly his compassion there. But then the centurion, the part that I just read, this is beautiful. Again, verses 5 and 6. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. He doesn't ask Jesus to do anything. Look at verse 7. What What does Jesus say? And he said to him, I will come and heal him. It's beautiful. Beautiful. Jesus is so quick to show mercy in this case. He doesn't ask him to do anything. Jesus says, I'm coming. I'm going to come and heal him. He's so quick to show mercy. Again, to quote Ryle, our great high priest is very gracious. He can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He is never tired of doing us good. He's never tired of doing us good. He knows that we are a weak and feeble people in the midst of a weary and troublous world. He is ready to bear us and help us. I mean, what a motivation, again, for us to pray. He is quick to show us mercy. He's ready to do good to us. So let's go to him. Secondly, we see Jesus' power on display. The leper was healed in an instant, made whole for all to see. He had an incurable disease, but Jesus heals him with his word, with a touch. The incomparable power of Jesus, this centurion servant. He's never been to that house. He's never seen him, and he's healed at a distance. Again, to quote Ryle, without even seeing the sufferer, without touch of hand or look of eye, our Lord restores health to a dying man. By a single word, he speaks, and the sick man is cured. He commands, and the disease departs. The incomparable power of Jesus so clearly on display in these two stories. Lastly, Jesus' teaching. We're going to come back to these two verses, verses 11 and 12. Jesus' teaching. So I'll read from verse 10 on as we get the context. Verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's take the first part. Verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So what's going on here? Jesus sees in the faith of the centurion, basically he sees this as a prophetic type of other Gentiles who are going to have faith like the centurion and who are going to be grafted into the people of God. That's, that's what I think what he's seeing here. Many are going to come from all over the globe. Other Gentiles like the centurion are going to come and they're going to be grafted into the people of God by faith. They're going to have faith like the centurion. Not only are they going to be grafted into the, the kingdom of God, they're going to recline at table with the patriarchs, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. One commentator said, not only will they be included in the number of the saved, but they will enter into bliss here typified by reclining with the patriarchs in God's kingdom. To recline with the patriarchs was to feast in leisurely manner in the very best company. Spurgeon has a sermon that he preached in the open air, and he just did these two verses, 11 and 12 of Matthew 8. First half of his sermon is on verse 11. And he talks about how incredible it's going to be. He talked about all kinds of different people are going to be grafted into the people of God, all kinds of different people. He talked about heaven. He talked about how we're going to recognize people in heaven. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will recognize. We'll recognize lost loved ones. And we're going to have fellowship with the best of company. He talks about wanting to see people in heaven. And I would just say, if you think about heaven, do you ever think about seeing people in church history in heaven? We're going to meet them. I mean, we're going to meet them. I mean, I cannot wait to meet people in heaven. Just one aspect that should get you excited about heaven. I just think about Jonathan Edwards. I want to go to that man and just say, thank you. I mean, he had such a powerful impact on my life as a brand new believer. I may have been converted reading his sermons. I'm just going to say thank you for writing about God and hell and eternity. Thank you. 
I'm going to find Jim Elizabeth Elliot and say, thank you, Jim, for your zeal. Thank you, Elizabeth, for trusting God in the midst of suffering. George Mueller, I'm going to give that man a hug and just say, thank you for your faith, for your love of the Bible. Spurgeon says this, I have often thought, I should love to see Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet. He says, and as soon as I get to heaven, I think I would ask for him. Because he spoke more of Jesus Christ than all the rest. I'm sure I would want to find that good George Whitfield. He who so continually preached to the people and wore himself out with zeal. Oh yes, we will have some choice company in heaven when we get there. That should get us excited about heaven. We will rest from sin and suffering and pain and we'll have fellowship with all the saints of all the ages. Oh, joyous verse, verse 11. But then verse 12 is, Spurgeon says, it's heartbreaking. Spurgeon said he could preach with great personal delight from the first part, but here is a dreary task to my soul because these are gloomy words here. Let me just read verse 12. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, Spurgeon just says, these are gloomy words, but he says, what is written in the Bible must be preached. (coughs) He said there are some ministers who will not mention the name hell. He said he heard a minister say, if you do not have faith in Jesus, you will go to that place that is not polite to mention. Spurgeon did not mince his words. He said that man should not be allowed to preach because he could not use plain language to speak about hell. So he says, if the Bible says, if the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, we must preach this plainly and clearly. Spurgeon said if he saw a building on fire, he wouldn't stand there and say, it seems to be the operation of combustion is taking place over there. No, he said, I would yell out, fire, fire, so people would clearly know what I mean. (coughs) Excuse me. So let's think about this, the subjects of the kingdom, or the sons of the kingdom. Who are the sons of the kingdom in our text? I think it's clear. The subjects of the kingdom are Jews who see themselves as sons of Abraham, belonging to the kingdom by right. Another commentator said, Jesus is speaking of Jews who, because of the nation's relationship to God, would be expected to feature in the kingdom of God, but whose lack of faith means they will forfeit their place. So belonging to the kingdom of heaven is not because of ancestry. It's not because of my parents or grandparents. It's not because of ancestry. It's because of faith, faith in Jesus. So all those who do not have faith are going to be cast out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, of course, Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone in the Bible. And one commentator made this point. I never heard this before. He said, every time when Jesus mentioned hell, there were people in his audience who assumed that they were part of the kingdom of God when in reality they were not. Apparently every time. That's that's amazing. So Jesus, out of love to his audience, he speaks about hell. Now Spurgeon jumps off this verse and he applies it to his day, and we can apply it to our day. But Spurgeon said something like this, there are people today who are noted for their external display of reverence for God, but who have no reverence for him on the inside. He said, these are people you see going off to church regularly and faithfully. They have their Bibles in hand. They appear outwardly religious. They appear devout and modest, looking as somber as they can, fancying that they are quite sure that they are saved because they do Christian things on the outside. But he said, whereas their hearts are not changed, they have no grace, no life, no Christ, and they will be thrown into the outer darkness. My guess is, even just today, in the state of Georgia, there are probably were thousands of people who attended church today who assumed that they were part of the kingdom of God when in actuality they were not. I mean, there are probably tens of thousands of people in the South today who are nominal Christians. 
or Christians in name only, who assume that they are part of the kingdom of God when in actuality they are not. How can I say that? Well, I was one of them for years. I had my Bible in hand, attended church. Everyone would assume I'm a Christian, but I wasn't. So I just want us to think briefly about the horror of hell for a few minutes. It's just something we probably don't think about as often as we should. So just think about this for just a minute. Weeping, gnashing of teeth. D.A. Carson says, weeping and gnashing emphasize the horror of the scene. Weeping suggests suffering and gnashing of teeth, despair. Those who never know Christ's covenant love will face the greatest weeping of all, the weeping of the lost. Another commentator said, in hell there will be great grief. Floods of tears shed, anguish of spirit praying eternally upon them. Let me just give an illustration. I've used this before, but sometimes an illustration can, can push it home. A uh, retired missionary named Dr. Ron Blue, who was in Guatemala for many years, a godly man. When he was in high school, he was playing on his high school basketball team, and he was a believer already, and he already had a passion for evangelism. He's just a natural evangelist, big, huge personality. So he's on his, <coughs> excuse me, on his high school basketball team. They're playing their rivals. And the game was tied after regulation, and they went into overtime. They were tied in overtime. They went into double overtime. Got a cough again, I think. <coughs> when it's a double, <coughs> sorry. <coughs> when it's a double overtime, and they lost by one point to their arch rivals. And after the game, Dr. Blue, who was a natural evangelist, was trying to share the gospel with a guy on the other team named Vince, trying to get across eternity and Jesus and sin and Christ's blood. And Vince wanted nothing to do with Dr. Blue. He said, leave me alone, Blue. We won. I want to go out and celebrate. doesn't want to talk about the things of God. And Dr. Blue said they went off, and I'm sure they had a wonderful time celebrating. But on the way home, they ran into dense fog. And in the density of the fog, they had a head-on collision. And everyone died in both cars. Dr. Blue said he stood before Vince's casket. And he said Vince's words were ringing in his ears. Leave me alone, Blue. We won. I'm going to go out and celebrate. And Dr. Blue just said, we're not playing games. The stakes are eternal life and eternal death. I mean, I think Martin Lloyd-Jones said, life is the most serious thing conceivable. It's because it's appointed unto man wants to die and then the judgment. We have to stand before God. But just think about weeping in hell for just a minute. R.C. Sproul has this message where he talks about this. I don't think I'll ever forget it. I'll try to do my, I may end up coughing on this, but I'll try to do my best R.C. Sproul impersonation. Sproul said this, he said, some people, when they wake up in hell, will be devastated. He said, there will not be enough tears in their eyes to satisfy their need to weep. He said, they will be sobbing, oh no, not here, no. It will be the greatest disappointment they can possibly experience. To wake up in hell. So what's the application? The application is, as John Piper says, the preciousness of being saved will rise in its intensity when we see the horror of what we're saved from. When we see that this is what I deserve. Eternal torment, weeping and gnashing of teeth, this is what I deserve. When I see the horror of what I'm saved from, the preciousness of being saved rises. But when I also see the beauty of what I'm saved for, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore, no sin, no suffering, no pain, all the saints of all the ages. When I see those things, and I would like to add, when I see the costs 
of our redemption, that Jesus would become sin for me. When you see those three things, worship and praise and adoration, flood the soul. And I would also say we should not debate Jesus' clear words, not try to soften them, but the horror of hell should motivate us out to be bold in our witness, to be steadfast in prayer for those who do not know Jesus. And again, the crucial point is, do we have faith in Jesus? Again, if you're not a Christian, we would say, come and rest in His finished work. Now, if you have your Bible still open, 1 Corinthians 11, we'll go there before we go to communion. 1 Corinthians 11, I'm going to read verses 23 to 28. First Corinthians chapter 11, reading from verses 23 to 28. <clears throat> For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we would ask, if you're, if you're not a Christian, we would ask you to abstain, to not come forward and partake of these elements. You don't need the elements. You need what they signify. You can turn from sin and rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ in your seat. That would be wonderful if that would happen. But if you are a Christian, you're not living in unrepentant sin, you're not at odds with another Christian, we'd ask after you examine yourself, we would ask you to come forward, take the elements and return to your seat. And uh, we take communion while we're sitting down because we rest, we're resting in the finished work of Jesus. Let me, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for this passage in Matthew 8. Uh, just a wonderful passage. Jesus' glory is so clear on display. Father, I pray that for the Christians in the room, that we would see ourselves like that leper. There was a time when we were covered in spiritual leprosy, and there was a time when the Lord Jesus came, grabbed a hold of us, and said, I will be clean. And we were cleansed, we were restored, we were covered in the blood of Jesus. I pray that just worship would be drawn out of us when we think on that. And Father, we think about the centurion, what faith he had, and I pray that you would strengthen our faith, that we would meditate on the person and work of Jesus. Father, as we think about Jesus, his compassion, his tenderness, the centurion doesn't even ask Jesus to do anything, and Jesus says, I will come and heal him. Jesus is so quick to show us mercy. Father, I pray that we would be quick to pour out our souls at the throne of grace. And Father, I think that we would spend more time thinking about hell. It is a dreadful reality, but it is a true reality. And Father, when we see the horror of what we're saved from, the preciousness of being saved will rise in its intensity. And Father, I do pray that there's someone here who's watching online or here in this room that doesn't know you in a saving way. Father, I pray that they would come to saving faith, that you would open their eyes to the beauty of Jesus, and it would happen even, even now. And Father, we're thankful for communion, that we can come and we can remember the Lord's broken body and his shed blood for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.